turn to. All right, good morning. If you'll come on and have your seat. We'll go ahead and get started. I know other people are still on their way here. Well, as we're getting settled in, getting ready to go, uh, it's good to see everybody here today. Um, A few announcements for you. If I can remember these, my phone's over there. If I can't, help me out with this, those of you that know what's going on better than me. I know that tonight we have men's gathering. That's at 6.30, I do believe, unless that has changed. We canceled men's gathering because men's gathering would have been next week. So we... Women, that's what's... Did I say men's tonight? Yeah. No, y'all just, you, you chauvinists just heard men. You didn't hear the woe part of it. <laughs> women's, women's gathering does gather tonight. I'm sorry if that was my problem. Uh, women's gathering does meet tonight. Yes, you are correct. Men's gathering next week is canceled. We will do the uh, Easter get-together instead of. So um, so anyway, so that is next, that is uh, tonight. The Easter egg hunt, the gathering, the potluck, all that stuff is next week. And again, because it's not in front of me, I know that Kelly, I believe, or Jake made a slide for that on Realm. I know Realm gives some of you fits. Remind me, Caroline. Caroline did? I'm so sorry. Caroline did that. Um, Caroline, what is the times? What are the times for that? Okay, okay. So for those of you listening online, uh, that it starts at 3.30. That is next Sunday. Uh, uh, I think the Easter egg, hunt, Easter egg hunt starts at 4, but there's hay rides, there's other things. We're doing a potluck as well. Again, Austin, uh, he, he announced this last week. If, uh, if, if you want to attend but you're not really comfortable with a potluck thing, we're going to be outside. You can spread out all that kind of stuff. If you're not comfortable with, with eating from the same dish or getting food from the same dish that others are, feel free to bring your own food just for you and your family. That is absolutely fine. No problem there at all. I want you to be comfortable. And so that is next week. So I uh, encourage you to be a part of that. Yes. Okay. If it rains, again, for those listening online, just to get announcements out there, if it rains, we'll postpone uh, the, the, the Easter get-together at the Groves. We'll push it back one week. Two weeks. Just making sure you're on it, all right? Two weeks. Got a lot of stuff on my brain. So two weeks, so we'll push it back. Today, if you're a part of the tech team, you will have a meeting day re- directly after the service. All right, so as soon as we're done, y'all can kind of gather around Jake, and he will instruct you all. So any questions, anything I missed? I know there's other announcements like evangelism training and all that, but we don't have to announce that today. So, all right. So, um, again, as we say every week, just think about those who are here. Think about those who are not here. And think about how you can encourage them. I know Heather is on her way back from Colorado. Uh, Remember to pray for Heather as she's home alone, kind of, uh, at least the only adult there. Um, and uh, pray for Jeremy as he's gone, Heather as, you know, she's by herself. Pray for Jeremy because he really wants the opportunity to share the gospel with those that he's uh, at boot camp with. And, uh, you know, and it's not a not an easy context. It's a, it's a fruitful context or a fertile 
context for those things. So just pray that he would capitalize on opportunities that are, that are before him. And pray for others that you see that aren't here. We sell the people that aren't feeling well. Um, it's just a, a constant battle with, uh, with just being in a fallen world. We deal with all of these things. So be in prayer for one another. Consider how you can best look out for the interest of other people as well. Um, that might be calling them. That might be encouraging them. That might be uh, seeing if there's a way that you can help them or anything. Because as we do proper one another and you know what's going on in each other's lives and consider those things and be willing to be someone that actually contributes to helping them in their time of need in their life. So anyway, uh, all right, I'm going to ask Shanna if she'll come up and if she'll read. Shanna, you can, you can use April's mic or my mic, whatever you would like. But anybody who's going to be using the mics today for prayer or whatever, be sure to use a mic. Otherwise, they won't be able to hear it when they listen online. All right. Y'all forgive me, I don't have glasses anymore because, well, there's lots of stories about why I don't have glasses anymore. So it, I'm going to be really focusing on the text. But we're going to read Psalm 19 this morning for our call to worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and these meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I just thank you so much for this time to gather with church family. Lord, to just take a moment to breathe and to be in your presence, to worship together. Lord, to acknowledge your glory that goes out across the whole world. God, I thank you for holding us accountable to that glory. Lord, no matter where we are, your word says that we have the opportunity to see that glory by your creation, Lord, and I thank you for that. And God, I thank you that you took it a step further and not only gave us everything that's around us, but you gave us your word that is true and is pure. Lord, it changes us. And God, I pray that that's what it will do today. Lord, the truth that's in the songs that we sing, the truth that comes from the word that's preached, I pray that it will stir our hearts, Lord, that it will light up our faces, and Lord, that through this time of worshiping in spirit and in truth, Lord, that we'll go forth today changed, and that we'll share that with others, and they'll see that true change in us, God, that genuine heart change that only you can do. So God, bless this time. Be glorified in our words and our worship. Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stay together.
Father, we are so thankful for the mystery of the gospel. From a human perspective, we cannot grasp why you would send your only son to come down to live as a human being, to suffer an ignominious death on the cross, to pay for the penalty of sins committed by your created beings. 
It makes no sense to us. And yet you chose to do that, and we're so grateful for that. We're so thankful for our study in the book of John and just the knowledge that John wrote this gospel so that men might know who Jesus Christ was and so that by knowing who he was, they could place their faith and trust in his finished work on the cross and by grace be saved, have their sins pardoned, washed away, and have fellowship with you, our Father. So we're so thankful for uh, the last couple of years that we've been able to dive deep into this book. We're thankful for what we can look forward to in the coming weeks as we move on to another study. But God, we thank you for, as we've been given this treasure, the, the many men and women who have gone out around the world to share this great gospel to uh, people who have never heard the truth. And we ask this morning that you would be with our missionaries, whether they be in Bangladesh or China or Ireland or whether they be here in the States right now because of everything that's gone on with the virus. We ask that you would strengthen and encourage their hearts this morning. Uh, keep the fire burning. We know several of our missionaries are here. They want to be overseas where you've called them to be. But for whatever reason right now, whether it be health or whether it be the virus issue, uh, they're not able to be there. So we ask that you would uh, give them wisdom, give them guidance as they seek your will for the future. We ask that you would open the doors uh, necessary so that they might be able to continue to spread your light in those countries. We ask for our own people who aren't able to be here with us today. We think especially of Austin and Leslie. We just ask that you would give them a special time away today, but bring them back to us soon, we pray. We pray for those who aren't able to be here because of sickness or uh, just concern for their health. Uh, we ask that you would encourage their hearts. Thank you for the opportunity they have to listen in uh, via the web and the opportunities that they have to be encouraged just through your word this morning. And we ask that they would take full advantage of that and that you would bring them back to us soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. We're about to do a new song for you guys. So please sing along if you
Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Stand for this last song, please. Yeah. 
Jesus, then all you need is Jesus. Why do you worry about your life? You cannot add a single hour to your life when you worry. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Why do you worry about your body, what you will eat, drink, or what you will wear? Look at the flowers of the field. They do not labor or spin to grow. They are here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow. Are you not much more valuable than they? You say to yourself, I am afflicted and in pain. The storms of this life have tossed me to and fro. The winds beat against my house. The waves of death swirl around me and you begin to worry. You say, Will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? 
and you continue to work. Look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They do not worry. So why do you worry? Your heavenly father takes care of them and he will take care of you. He is your shepherd. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you besides quiet waters and he restores your soul. When you are weak, he gives you strength. When you are hurting, he comforts you. When you are confused, he lights your path. So do not worry about your life. Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly father takes care of them. So if all the birds need is Jesus, then all we need is Jesus. So if all the birds need is Jesus, then all you need is Jesus. You can get this down a little bit. A lot. <laughs> All right. Better? Better? So I saw that video, and my thought was, my first thought was, you can come down a little bit more, whatever's good for out there. Uh, my thought was that that video represents what true freedom is. Because you read a lot in the Bible about there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that means there's freedom for those who are in Christ. And the Bible has a lot to talk about with regards to freedom. And I watched that video and I thought, you know, the fact that we are free from the condemnation of sin is just a part of the freedom that we have. We have freedom not to be consumed with anxiety, freedom, not to be consumed with worry. You know, just as it says in, in Matthew, we have freedom in those ways. I can cut this off and cut it back on. Maybe that'll... One, one, two, better, better, check, one, one. Okay. You'll just let me know what I need to do because I can, I can abandon this and stand behind that if I need to. So for those of you listening online, if it sounds weird, I'm sorry. So if you have your uh, copy of the scriptures, you can turn to 1 Peter. Obviously, we finished John, so we're somewhere else. So let's turn. I'm going. I'm going analog. All right, is this okay? A little better, at least that way. That way the online listeners... Don't have to lip read, so you have to adapt. All right, so turn to First Peter. We're going to be at First Peter chapter 
uh, chapter 2. And I'm going to take a couple of weeks to walk through a few things in these texts. So whenever we finish a book of the Bible and before we start a new book of the Bible, we always have the opportunity to kind of preach on things that are burning in our hearts, um, things that we might feel be relevant, might be relevant for the church body. And so that's kind of where this has taken me today. So I've been reading through First Peter, my just personal reading and reflections with the Lord, and um, it's just been pressing me over and over and over again. And I'm not going to preach through the book of First Peter, maybe two or three sermons tops, but there's just some things that are really uh, have really been affecting me and influencing me in my my way of thinking and in my practice. So you're going to get some of that over the next couple of days. So First Peter, a little bit of a context of First Peter is that Peter's writing to, he calls them exiles. Now, this is probably metaphorical in the sense that, or figurative in the sense that they are exiles of this world as we know it, but they are, they belong to Jesus. So therefore, in a sense, strangers, therefore, in a sense, foreigners, therefore, as we are sojourners, you know, that, uh, that, that there's a sense in which this world is not our home, obviously a sense in which that it is. And so, and so that's who Peter's writing to. He's writing to these exiles, probably mostly Gentiles, as a matter of fact, but definitely a mixture between Jews and Gentiles. But what's interesting about this letter is these people are suffering under the oppressive thumb of persecution uh, under, under the Greco-Roman world. And so Peter, who, interestingly, that we would go here today after we just looked at Peter at the end of John, this kind of... Uh, you still have that taste in your mouth. You still have the taste in your mouth of Peter falling. You still have the taste in your mouth of Peter being reinstated and the grace that Jesus lavishes onto him. And so now you fast forward through time and you see where Peter now has some street cred because he's been through the crucible. You know, he's, he's faced the music. He's endured the heat. So now he's standing there with someone with some serious credibility and he's writing to these believers probably new believers, and he's saying to them, you're under the oppression of Rome. You're under persecution. Now, this wasn't yet widespread persecution. This was more sporadic persecution as far as the timeline of first century persecution. It was about to pick up, and it was about to lamb blast everything. So Peter's writing to them, and he's encouraging them and wanting them to prepare themselves. And the first thing he says out of the gate is you must subject yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. He says this, and then he continues. He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, we'll stop there. Next week, I'll pick up where I left off. Because next week, we're going to get more into a sufferer's response to oppression, right, as seen in First Peter, because that's what he tells them. Hey, be ready for this. Posture yourself for this. And one way that you posture yourself for suffering that you're going to endure is by subjecting yourself to every human institution. Now, I don't know about you, but just hearing that at face value kind of rubs me the wrong way. Not that the Bible rubs me the wrong way, but the idea of subjecting to any human, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. I mean, you ladies in the room, especially you, especially you ladies who are married, 
not just, I mean, just a few verses away in chapter 3, Peter addresses wives, and he says, just as I've instructed you to subject yourself to every human institution, wives, subject yourself to your husbands. He didn't offer a caveat and say, listen, if your husband is a God-fearing, righteous man, subject yourself. He just said, subject yourself. The same thing happens in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, wives, submit to your husband, and he gives a degree by which that submission takes place, as to the Lord, he says. And so Peter comes out of the gate saying, subject yourself, and that's a tough pill for us to swallow. Because we think of human institutions, and we think, well, those are corrupt. You know, these, these are led by sinful men. We're all sinful men. We're all sinful, broken people. But in some of these institutions, you have those who are not just sinful by nature, but you have those that are set against God by practice. Those that, those that are looking to be scoffers, those who are looking to be mockers and antagonists of the gospel. And you say, are we supposed to subject ourselves to those things? And I would submit to you, yes, with some caveats, which we'll get into in just a minute. So basically the theme of the next couple of weeks that I preach is going to be enduring suffering and the glory of God. Enduring suffering and the glory of God, because that's what First Peter is about. It's about what we're going to endure as followers of Christ and how we are to respond to the oppressors, how we are to respond to the persecutors as believers. What kind of orthodoxy leads us to our practice? You know, if you read First Peter, if you read even the beginning of Second Peter, you, talk, you see how he talks about how, hey, they're set apart. You know, you're to be a holy people. You know, he talks more about practice, but he also talks about theological things, and he gets to this point where he says, now, subject yourself. And the context is key here because they are being oppressed for believing in Christ. They are being oppressed. They're being persecuted for their belief in the resurrection. That's what the apostles eventually died for, was their belief and their promoting of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, having the credibility, having gone through that crucible and still to come going through the crucible, he's saying to them, listen, it's worth it. It's worth it. So brace yourselves. He wants to encourage his readers to endure suffering and to be persecuted and suffer well. This letter is written to Christians dispersed in Pontius. It says it in the text, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. The letter was written, again, mostly Gentiles. And then he begins his letter reminding the persecuted believers of what they have that matters in Christ. He exhorts them in personal pursuit of holiness. They must remain set apart during this trial. And this moment, this is critical. It's critical for believers to remain set apart when we face these trials. Because the way that we respond to all of these trials is the telltale sign of the value that we place in Jesus Christ. How you respond to trials in your life is evidence of the value you place on Jesus Christ. And just to pull back the curtain a little bit to let you know, we would ask ourselves or maybe even ask Jesus, What's the purpose? Why subject ourselves to a human institution? 
Why submit ourselves? The word subjection literally means to submit oneself to someone or something. And we don't like that, but that's what it literally means. There's no special Greek nuance here for us to understand. I've looked at it, I promise. There's nothing here that can say, well, here's the caveat, or this is what degree of subjection. Not in that word. Now, there are other contextual issues, like in Acts chapter 5, where we're going to see that there are times where we turn away and say, I cannot subject myself to man in that way. So before you get upset with me for giving this totalitarian view of subjection, there are caveats in far, as far as practice. But as far as this word, it means a literal subjecting oneself to. And we struggle enough with subjecting to the Lord as it is, much less subjecting ourselves to, to men, much less subjecting ourselves to a human institution. The major issue with a human institution is the human factor. And it's hard for us. It's hard for us to do these things. But keep in mind this, and this is important to understand, that human institutions are divine in their origin. God set those things in place. God gave us human institutions. And that's important to, to, to remember going through this. God is the originator of these things, but his means by doing this was good. His efforts in doing this, his purpose was good and perfect as a means of grace for you. Our government, whether it's local or whether it's national, these things are a grace. Do we have men and women that are broken sinners, that are lost, that have another agenda at times? Absolutely we do. Some of us would raise our hand and say, I'm a dissenter. You know, I get all of that. I understand. I understand some of the pushback. You know, I understand some of the struggle. But understand that God put these institutions in place. That's why we're instructed to pray for those who hold office, for those who are in these leadership positions, because they're placed there by God. And the best case scenario for us is to have a Joe Biden who got, who got, who got rescued from darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. That's the best thing for us. It's not to pray for his, for his death or pray that something happens to him. My goodness, it's to pray that he might encounter a real Christ. And man, that would really turn the world upside down right? That's the best way to do that. That's to pray for all these people that we scroll through on Facebook and we see memes made of and we're like, yeah, yeah. We rally behind that. We scoff and mock with the rest of them. The best thing we can do is pray that they would become radically entranced by the gospel of Jesus. That's how we should spend our efforts praying. Now, I'm not here to bring condemnation on anybody for their frustrations with, uh, for, for whoever hold office. That's not the point. The point is that God has put them there. God has created these institutions. And by the way, Everything we're subjected to is 100%, whether they like it or not, subjected to the rule and the reign of Jesus. And that's the silver lining here. That's the beauty of all of this. But now I'm getting the cart before the horse. I'm going to have to preach this again later in the sermon, and it makes it longer. So let's move forward. So here we go. Discuss. I want to discuss, I want to discuss this theme of subjection for a moment. This is not the first time that you see it. You see it multiple times. There is a theme of subjection throughout the entire Bible. But just to name a few, we have Ephesians 5, wives submitting to husbands. We have slaves in many texts submitting to their masters, both in Ephesians and in 1 Peter here in just a minute, or next week you'll see that. We have submitting to one another, Ephesians chapter 5 again. We have children submitting or obeying their parents I had a discussion with one of my children this week about why children obey their parents. It's not, we don't modify behavior so that we can get something out of it. It's not, hey, do this so that 
I'll grant you this or so that I'll be more lenient here. You do it because it's right. You do it because it's the right order. You don't do it for what's mutually beneficial to you. You do it for what it is and for what God calls you to do and the reason there. It's the same reason that we pray for those in office. That's the same reason we subject ourselves to every human institution because God has put them there and it's right to do so with a caveat to be explored later. Submission to rulers and authorities is in Hebrews 13, Romans 13, and Titus 3. So again, there's this common thread woven through the fabric of Scripture. This letter itself deals with the issue of subjection to human institution, to man-made institutions. And consider this, that these Christians were being told to subject themselves to a government that was persecuting their very Christianity. This is when this information comes to them. They're suffering the heat, they're suffering the persecution, albeit sporadic, but still persecution. And this is how Peter instructs them. This is his encouragement from afar. This is how he comes in and he wants to encourage them. I mean, imagine imagine that you're awaiting some letter that had some clout behind it, that had some weight behind it. Maybe you're going to get a letter that's going to instruct you on how you need to respond to these things. Probably the last thing you want to hear is subject yourself to it. But But they're killing us. Well, subject yourself to it. But they're slandering us. Subject yourself to it. Submit yourself to it. So I don't know how the recipients of this letter responded in their mind or in their words. I just know what they're instructed to do. And I trust the Word of God that it's not making a mistake in how it's instructing us to respond in these situations. So there's a theme of subjection throughout the Scriptures But there's also the way that we apply this subjection. Okay, so again, we look at the text. We look at the text, and it says, Be subject to the Lord, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil or to praise those who do good. So, what does, how does, or where, sorry, where does subjection apply? for the believer, for the follower of Christ. Because you have to ask yourself that. Okay, I get subjection. Where's the loophole? Maybe you're wanting to know that. Where's the caveat? Where do I find these things? How do I apply? You know, Evan and I have conversations all the time. Thought he could hide sitting back there in a different corner. We have conversations all the time about speeding. I'm like, subject yourself to the governing authority. He's like, if they're not going to enforce it. So we go back and forth with all of this, right? So so, so I'm going to give you a little bit of application. Now, let me give this disclaimer. As I begin to think through this, I know there are multiple nuances and conversations and questions that could come up. Well, what about in this scenario? What about in this scenario? Let me go ahead and let myself off the hook. My attempt is not to answer every single scenario, all right, uh, because I can't, because there are some scenarios that I even struggle with as I started to unpack it, because my typical MO is to try to bring up all these scenarios and get root-level honest as I can with you, but there are some complexities that I think deserve maybe missional community time and not extra time up here necessarily when there's other ground to cover. So deal with nuances, missional community leaders. Bring those up. Stoke the fire. Poke the bear. Whatever you want to call that and get into some of those discussions. So let's talk about some of this application. We subject ourselves to every human institution so far as it does not transgress the revealed will of God. Do we subject ourselves to institutions that are corrupt? To a degree, we have to. 
because every institution that's man-made has a degree of corruption as far as our nature, right? We are corrupted in a sense that we have a sin nature. So if you want to be real technical, then in a sense, we do submit. And what I mean is these rules or laws or edicts or whatever you want to call come down the pike, come down from top, and it's not a law that is offensive to the revealed will of God. But guess who's at the helm? I mean, Jesus, obviously, maybe a corrupt person. But that law, that edict that maybe comes from someone who has a bad agenda or something like that is not against the revealed will of God. Then I believe that we're fine to pursue that. That's what I mean. So I have to explain myself. It gets very nuanced. Now, there's a level of corruption and that its agenda is to fight against gospel, is to fight against the things of God. In those scenarios, we step back and we say, I'm not bound to that level of subjection. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is supremely reigning over all of these things, and all things are under his foot. So all things are ultimately under his subjection. In some senses, every human institution, I said that, are corrupt. We subject ourselves to every human institution as long as they are functioning in their God-ordained capacity. If a government is in place or a police department is in place to protect you, that is a grace given by God. Is there corruption? Absolutely. Are there those that don't want to do their job? Are there those that want to uh, uh, take Christians and maybe pin them or get them in trouble or see about persecution coming to them or their mouths being shuttered or something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we sift through and we see, okay, this institution is given to us for our good. This institution is given to us by grace and, 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 and well, for grace, for our betterment. You know, I am thankful. I am thankful for the police department. I am thankful that if something goes down and they come and they're honest and they're integral and they want to really abide by the law, that it's going to be in my favor unless I've done something awful, right? I'm thankful for that. That is a grace that God did not have to give to me. God could have superintended to all my need, all my needs however he wanted, and he does that. But one of the ways he does that is through means, and some of those means are human institutions. So it should not come as a feather-ruffling thought to think we are to subject ourselves to every human institution. So the question is, when do we refuse to subject ourselves to these human institutions? First, let me, let me say this. Our or your disagreement or discomfort regarding laws or rules is never to be the hinge on which the door of obedience swings. You understand that? This is important. It's, it's, it's what you know versus what you feel all over again. If there's a law that's given and you don't like it, you don't like it, but it's not immoral, it's not against God, then your discomfort and your opinion are not a right or a reason to defy the human institution that God has placed over you. And this happens all the time. It happens all the time. Let's, let's get real personal. What if there is a mask mandate? 
I mean, it is a law. It is. You're going to jail if you don't have it. But you don't like wearing it. I don't like wearing it. And you say, you know what? I'm not going to wear it. And we start spouting off at the mouth about freedom and all this kind of stuff when they're asking you to wear a mask. I mean, this is relevant because this is what we've, we've been through to a degree, right? For you to say, heaven forbid, you pull this junk saying I'm free in Christ not to wear the mask. That's Jesus didn't shed his blood for you to be maskless. I promise you that, okay? Uh, so, but if you defy that law, if it's a law, it's not immoral, it's not against the will of God, then we have a problem, right? That's a problem. So your discomfort or your uh, uh, personal opinion or your disagreement with something is not a means for you to defy that unless your discomfort is rooted in the fact that it is against the law of God. Am I clear? Is that a clear distinction there? Okay. However, if that law, that human law, is contrary to the law of God, it must be disobeyed. It must be disobeyed. And I know that there are some, again, it gets nuanced, that there are some that take that letter of the law and they're like, no, 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 we have to, and we just trust God. He's just sovereign. We have to trust him with that. If the law in China says you cannot go there and share the gospel in public, and someone says, well, that's the law. That's the law. I'm going to submit to governing authorities, man. I I just have to do that. I believe that is wrong. I believe it defies their edict or their law. I believe that defies the law of God because God has made it very clear that that is your job. That is your job as believers in making the glory of God known and making his renown known is through the sharing of the gospel, is putting on display verbally and obviously through your actions, being salt and light, that God is sovereign, that Jesus saves through his gospel, and that man, upon their repentance and faith, can have life eternally in Jesus Christ, have abundant life in Jesus Christ. That's the mandate. That's what the message we've been given to share with the world. And for any human institution that comes and says, you can't share that message, is defying the law of God. So that you do not have to, you don't have to obey. You don't have to obey that. Because to obey that law would mean then you're disobeying the law of God. And I do think this is fairly low-hanging fruit. It's not uber-theological. This is just where we are in the text, okay? So if this is more classroom-esque than, than more of an exhortation or more how, I'm, how I usually preach, then just allow for that because this is where we are in the text. What if witnessing became illegal? What if preaching against things like homosexuality, you know, against the sexual revolution or the transgender movement, what if these things, if we're reading the signs, because we're, I feel like we're on the fast track there, what if these things are a criminal offense? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you go to jail. Do we, do we, do we acquiesce to this law? Do we say no? Because some would say, listen, as a Christian, don't be quarrelsome. Don't, don't, don't fight. Don't kick against the goads, man. There's other ways. Be more creative in the way that, that you want to get truth out. Play this thing smart. Be smart in warfare. Be a better strategist. And see, I think there are times in warfare where you strategize that way. But I don't think it's ever, ever, ever wrong to stand out on the street and say, trust Christ. Come to Christ, O you sinner. Whether the government says yay or nay about that, 
we have a mandate ultimately being subjected to Christ and his rule that does not allow us to acquiesce to any governmental or any human institution that defies the law of God. How do we biblically reconcile the mandate to submit to every human institution while also having the right to deny that mandate in certain contexts? In Acts chapter 5, I love this text in the book of Acts. So the apostles had been sharing the gospel. They had been proclaiming Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And they caught a lot of heat for this. They were even arrested. They were incarcerated. And then Peter and the others are standing before this council. And the council warns them. It's a beautiful text, those, those few chapters. He's warned in this, in, in, in Acts chapter 5, um, verses 25 through 27 specifically, he's warned, hey, you need to stop this. You need to stop this business of going around and preaching this resurrection from the dead. You need to cut this out. I mean, they've already penalized him, and he's warning, he's warning them, things are going to get worse for you. Things are going to get bad. If you continue this, we're going to have to step it up a little bit. It might not be just an arrest. It might be that we take your life as well as your rabbi's life that we took some time ago. And this is how Peter responds. Now, this is very condensed. Go back and read the rest of it. It's beautiful. The disciples are told to stop speaking of Christ, and Peter responds by saying, we must obey God rather than man. I think that's one place, just as textual evidence, to support the fact that we do not acquiesce to any governmental mandates that defy the clearly revealed will of God. Now, let me offer this as well. I said clearly revealed will of God. Words matter. Again, you may come up and say, I believe this is the will of God. Okay, maybe it is for you, but God did not reveal this in his text. So be very careful with what you deem to be the will of God. Be very careful not to be driven by your opinions of what a thing should or should not be in terms of the will of God. If we're going to deal with the reveal will, stick what's here. Stick what he's shown us. You can't, you can't go wrong there. You might go dead, but you won't go wrong. Okay? Stick with that. That'll work for you. And so there's a theme. There's a pattern. There's a mandate of subjecting ourselves to one another, wives to husbands, servants to masters, submitting to governing authorities. All of these things are all throughout the Bible, ultimately submitting to Jesus. And we see that it's there. We understand that that's what this means. It's pretty clear, but let's talk about the purpose of that. And here's kind of where the rubber meets the road. I think here's the, the good news. If you'll notice, the first line here says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And I'll, and I'll admit this. When I was reading through this, I read through this several weeks ago, multiple times. And when I read it, all I said to myself was, subject yourself to every human institution. Over and over, subject yourself to every human institution. And I completely looked over, subject yourself for the Lord's sake. Because it changes everything. Subject yourself to every human institution. What? I mean, yeah, you can, you can arrive at some purpose. You can look through the scriptures and say, well, maybe it's this. He tells you, subject yourself for the Lord's sake not for the authority of the government's sake, not for your sake, but for the Lord's sake. Subject yourself to every human institution. With a theme like subjection spanning across thousands of years of biblical history, you have to take seriously seriously the nature of that mandate. 
It's over and over and over again that we see it. So we have to take things seriously. Subjection to every human institution is really a means to an end. It's a means to an end. Meanwhile, you're doing this as you're free because the Scripture then says, uh, it then says, for it is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as those who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for sin. We'll get to those in just a second. But subjection to every human institution is a means to an end. The glory of God is the destination, and subjection is one of the roads we travel to get there. We glorify God in everything we do. That's what the scriptures teach us. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. One of those all things for the glory of God is what? It's subjecting yourself to every human institution insofar as it is not contrary to the revealed will of God or the law of God. It's simple. So, Evan, maybe I've answered our question about speeding. I'm just saying, right? Everything we subject ourselves to is under the subjection of Christ. Our government, although it doesn't act like it or even believe in it to some degree, I'm not saying everybody, they're under the foot of Christ. And that's, I think that's a very encouraging reality to remember. Because sometimes I think, at least for myself, I think it's easy to back up and think that things are really a little bit out of control, right? Things are a little out of control. Things are flipped on their head. And to a degree, yes, they are flipped on their head. You know, that started only in Genesis 3. Okay, so things are flipped on their head. So this should, this should be something we're familiar with by now. It's so funny to me how we freak out over so many things. It's like, this has been happening <laughs> for about 6,000 years, right? Where, where have you been? What rock have you been under? What game have you been playing? You know, come up for air and see that we are in a constant trajectory of topsy-turvy world being flipped on its head, okay? That's what brokenness does. That's what sin does. Jesus is still on the throne for you post-mill folks, right? I believe that 100%. He's absolutely in control of everything now, which is why I am not remotely concerned, and nor should you be, at the way in which the world is going. Now, not being concerned doesn't mean that I don't concern myself with it. It means that I don't, that I'm not subjected or succumb to fear because of it. There's a difference. Otherwise, what does that say about the accomplished work of Jesus? If I'm driven by fear, if I live in that state, what does it say about the accomplished work of Christ? If I'm going to go and live off grid and hide myself from the government because I'm afraid of what they're going to do, what does it say about the accomplished work of Christ? The accomplished work of Christ proves that he is victorious. Not will be, but he is. Has been for a long time. Has been before it ever really started for us. The fact that he exists, the fact that he exists solidifies victory for him. Because he exists as an eternal sovereign, an eternal ruler. So subjection is a motif within Christianity because, listen to this, our obedience to the commands of Jesus puts on display the value of Jesus. So here's kind of the crux of it, okay? Here's the arc in this sermon. Here's where I think, for me, it's a crescendo. We look at subjection. We say, why do we have to do this? But what if it's corrupt? What if they're bad? What if they're not, you know, I mean, they, they don't love me. They don't even like me. You know, they're trying to legalize this, trying to legalize that. They're trying to do away with this. Clearly, they're godless. So why do we have to do this? 
It's not easy. Wives, you may say from time to time, why do I have to subject to this man? You know, why do I have to submit to him? What does that even mean? What, what does it mean? You know, we, 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 we carefully joke around about these things sometimes. Not in my house. Not in my house. But we joke around about these things sometimes, you know, about what it is to submit to the husband. We had jokes during praise band earlier this morning. I'll let uh, others tell you about that. But all in fun, but it's, it comes from a place. There's something in us that just doesn't like to submit. Women, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but let's just be honest in your own minds. It's not always just super easy to follow that fella, right? It's just not always that easy. It can't be. I know this. Not because I know him, but because I know human nature. It's not easy. I also know this because we were told that as a part of the fall, the desire of the woman would to be over the man. So I know it's difficult. I get it. I get it. It's very difficult. And then we say, but subject myself to, a, to, to, to human institutions that we disagree with a lot of times, that we don't feel have our best interests in mind, but they have their own interests in mind? Really? Yes, insofar as it does not contradict the revealed will or law of God. Subjection is a motif within Christianity because our obedience to the commands of Jesus puts on display the value of Christ. And that's where the rubber meets the road. For these Christians that Peter's writing to, for him to look at them and say, or to write to them and say, they're persecuting you. Maybe they're killing you. Your response, in part, needs to be subjection. Needs to be subjection. Submission. And why? Because Jesus is worth the persecution. I mean, that's it. It's simple. That's it. Wives. And it's right. I mean, it fits any theme of subjection. Why do we do that? Because it shows the value you place on Jesus. We will endure a lot of things for things that we place value on. You, again, you ladies, let me, let, me, let me just boast in ladies, okay? I've talked before about how incredible it is that you not only make a baby in your body, but then you produce the baby, and then you go back and do it again. You know, I've seen it once. I'm like, I'd be done. That's it. That's borderline nonsensical, you know. And so no wonder they give you drugs whenever you have to have a baby for some of you. I get it. But you keep going back, for those of you that have multiple children, you keep going back, and you know what it's going to be like. (laughs) You know it's going to be tough, and you know your husband's going to stand on the sidelines thinking he's helping you, but he can't do anything. He's going to say things like, breathe, you're doing good breathing, and you're wanting to tell him to shut his face or go somewhere else. I get it. I get it. I was there. I was there three times, and I'm like, I'm doing nothing here, nothing. My wife was gracious enough to tolerate me for those moments because we contribute nothing at that stage of the game. And women keep going back to that, and I am, in, I am impressed. I really am. But why do you keep going back to that, ladies? Because you value being a mother. You value what you have and what you gain in children. Yes, they drive us nuts, but they are wonderful and they are a gift. So we keep going back, you know. 
We put ourselves through painful procedures, awkward checkups, and scary tests because we value our health, right? We do that. Nobody looks forward to, in their right mind, going to the doctor and being like, I'm going to have a painful procedure just because. It's fun. Yeah, cut me from here to here and just explore. No, no problems with me. Just want to experience it. No, nobody does that. You go and you experience these things because you value your health. And so my question is, how much more does walking into the fire for the Lord's sake intimate the value we place on Jesus? Because would you rather walk into a delivery room, ladies, to have a child because you value motherhood and children, and you value family, and you value life, life? Or would you rather walk into the crucible of persecution, possibly being burned at the stake, beheaded, fed to lions, or whatever was about to happen in Rome? Because you value Jesus. It's hard to compare these earthly examples that we have outside of the example we have of persecution. Because it's just different. Peter's telling them to endure the oppressive thumb of Roman persecution so that all might see the surpassing value of Christ. So you see, our subjection is more than some arbitrary archaic disposition that Christians must take as doormats to others. It's a choice to endure for the glory of God. And what's beautiful about this is he says, live as free people. You choose to endure because you're free. You subject yourself because you're free. There's a beauty And there's a beautiful reconciliation between subjection to human institutions or subjection to anything and freedom in Christ. I'll be honest with you. I labored over how to word these things and just have fallen short time and time again as I try to explain these things. But I just know that there's a compatibility and a beauty and there's, uh, you know, a reconciliatory reality between subjecting ourselves to every human institution and freedom in Christ. They are compatible, and they they do go together. Subjection as a Christian means conduct is also, uh, sorry, subjection as a means of Christian conduct is also a means of putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we're told to subject ourselves. We know the purpose is to show the value of Jesus Christ. We're also told to subject ourselves because what it does, that form of conduct, rather than vigilantism as Christians, Rather than drawing the sword as Christians, again, it's nuanced. I understand there's different arguments for different contexts. Okay, I told you I can't, I can't deal with all those things right now. But as a general rule of thumb, what this text is saying is generally speaking, generally speaking is that by doing good that we silence the ignorance of foolish men. And do you know where the ignorance of foolish men or people comes from? It comes from being darkened in their understanding, the book of Ephesians. So that's what we're up against. Those who are darkened in understanding, therefore, the only direction they can go is the direction of ignorance. Because when you're in darkness, you just can't see or you don't know. The enemy has a ravenous appetite for discrediting the church of Christ. You understand that? A ravenous appetite for discrediting the church. Looking for every opportunity 
to heap condemnation on the church or to bring discredit to the church. The enemy loves to see the scars and the imperfections of churches of the church throughout history, and we have them. We have them, right? So many things have been done in the name of Jesus. So many things have been done in the name of God. The Catholic Inquisition done in the name of God. Let's burn every heretic. Let's burn every heretic because that's how you respond to heretic. We don't respond with the gospel. We don't give them truth. We don't take those who are darkened in their understanding and bring them before the light and say, let this be a light unto your path. Let this be a lamp unto your feet. And let this be hidden in your heart so that you no longer sin against God. No, we burn them at the stake. (laughs) That's a blemish in church history. It's a part of church history. Whether you deem the Catholic Church to be a true church or not, it is a part of church history. And the outside world looks at that and says, see, boom, that's on you. And the enemy loves it. He loves those scars. He loves those blemishes. We're torn apart over how to conduct ourselves during a pandemic, right? I mean, there have been churches that have divided during this time because of pandemic-related things. I get it. I get it. Different perspectives, different opinions, different convictions, different passions, different definitions. I get it. I get it. We've, we've, we've been swimming in those waters for a while now. And fortunately, God has been so gracious to give us enough and of an economy of grace and love that he's holding us strong. We're divided over issues of race relations. Whether it's a right understanding or a misunderstanding, we're divided over these issues. Churches split left and right over secondary, non-essential issues, over petty issues, and they have been for years and years and years. Growing up somewhat of a fundamental Baptist, not in a negative sense, growing up in a traditional sense of the word as a Baptist, the joke was always, oh, we'll split over the color of the carpet. And we laugh about these things because I've heard it forever, heard it from the old timers. They said, oh, yeah, we split over the organ, you know, get the right organ or whatever. You know, you're not saved if you don't have an organ in church. You know, all of these things. I've witnessed some very heated business meetings at a church over things just like that, where people were ready to fight one another, not in the street, in the aisle, (laughs) because of things like that. These things divide us. And the enemy loves it. He loves those scars. He loves those blemishes that unfortunately mark church history, whether it's a recent history or a distant past. But our conduct, that by doing good, will silence the ignorance of foolish men. What would it be like if the world didn't have to look at every other church splitting over tertiary things? Split over the gospel. Hey, they believe the gospel is sufficient. They believe that the gospel is just one way to Jesus. Yeah, split over that. Get Yeah, yeah, okay. Who who believes that the gospel is just one way to get to heaven? Who who, who believes that all roads lead to Rome? Who has the the pluralistic Oprah Winfrey uh, mentality towards Christianity? Who's that? Yeah. We, okay. Y'all can go. (laughs) Let's have a conversation. But you can't follow Jesus and be a Christian if you don't hold to the true biblical gospel. These things divide, that should be something that does divide us. That's something worth fighting over. The best weapon against the ignorance of men is the applied truth or word of God. This is God's will that the righteousness of Christ in you will be displayed through you. 
So how do we apply this? Let me ask you this. How do you repay slanderous words? How do you respond to lies or false accusations against you? How do you respond to others' attempts to uh, assassinate your character? With all of these, do we retaliate or do we allow our good conduct to speak for who we are? Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of having the righteousness of Christ? Because that's the kind of conduct that will silence the ignorance of foolish men. These human institutions that are replete with the ignorance of foolish men are bringing down these laws, are bringing down these rules and all these things. And we subject ourselves to those, A, because we know the greater purpose is subjecting ourselves to Jesus, therefore showing the true value of Jesus. But we also watch out for these things that are contra God's word, that are contrary or opposed to God's revealed will and his word. And then the Christian church acts against those things. But when we show out on non-essentials because of opinions, because of discomfort that aren't the will of God, that aren't clearly revealed as such, then we discredit ourselves. And there's going to be a lot of this application next week, by the way. I just had to refrain from going there uh, for what we had to deal with. Last thing is this. Discuss, I want to discuss with you for a moment this paradoxical nature of compatibility with regards to marriage, of the marriage between subjection and freedom. In verse 16, after he says that by doing good you should silence the ignorance of foolish people or foolish men, he says, live as those who are free. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up or a cloak. Don't use it in this way. This is common language in the Bible Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only to not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use it for that reason. There are the, these are the same words employed uh, across the Scriptures with regards to freedom. Live as people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for the flesh. You get into the realm of antinomianism. You get into the realm of those who are lawless. That's what that word means. Freedom is not a license for lawlessness. Because unfortunately, what you get into, you get into some people that say, I'm free in Christ, and they use that as a license to not subject themselves to human institutions. And let me just throw this out there, because I think it's important, because these things can be abused, this idea of being free in Christ. Christ, first of all, he freed you from the condemnation of sin. He freed you from a lot of things. But be very careful, because I've heard all throughout my life that I have freedom in Christ to do this and this and this. And in the blanks, you have words like, well, I'm okay to drink because I'm free in Christ. This discussion is not about whether it's okay to drink or not to drink in moderation or to abuse. This is not what this is about. But be very clear whether something is okay or not. Let's be very clear what freedom in Christ means. Jesus did not die so that you could drink. He did not die so that you could get tattoos. He did not die so that you could smoke. He did not die so that you could do all. And I'm using these because these are examples I've heard in all my life. These are things that culture likes to attack, right? They like to attack. Christian culture likes to attack these things. And oftentimes the response from Christians is, but I'm free in Christ. That's not what your freedom means. You're freed from the condemnation of sin. 
You're freed from the clutches of death. You understand? That's what you're free from. So that's an important note to make. But freedom is not, is not a license for lawlessness. This looks like sinning at will and banking on grace. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? He said, by no means. So to go out there and say, you know what, I'm just racking up the sin count because what that's going to do, it's going to illuminate the, the beautiful grace of God. He says, by no means. <laughs> You're to move away from sin. You're to move away from sin, and every inch that you do to remove yourself from sin or the practice of sin, that is what pronounces the grace of God, because every inch is not something that you've earned or done on your own, but it's somewhere that God graciously has taken you, and that's important as a distinction to make. Freedom in Christ does not mean you don't have to obey. Sorry, freedom in Christ does not mean you don't have to obey human institutions. It doesn't mean, hey, I'm not of this world, so everything this world says that I have to do, I don't have to do it because now I'm a slave to Jesus. I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm no longer under the law. If you keep rolling down that train, then you keep, you, you, you keep misusing these scriptures. But what this means to be free in Christ is that you're free from the condemning effects of sin. It means that we are free from the slavery of sin and are now slaves to Christ. True freedom is belonging to and being protected by Christ and his righteousness. We freely subject ourselves to human institutions because of our ultimate allegiance to Jesus. And subjection to Christ, as I began this, te- this sermon, is ultimate freedom. We no longer have to worry about our lives, who will take care of us. We don't have to live under the weight of condemnation. We're free from the concern of what others think about us. The guys and the women who are out at the abortion clinic or downtown, whether it be Greer or Greenville, and they have people mocking them, they are free from the concern of what people think about them. But we have to be every bit concerned with what Jesus thinks of us. And that's freedom. Freedom to subject yourself to every human institution. Because ultimately, those institutions bow the knee to Jesus. Freedom from the concern of what those institutions might demand. What they might let slip through the cracks. Freedom to not be troubled or worried by those things. Freedom to not concern ourselves with a political climate. And again, concern doesn't mean that you're flippant about it. We do concern ourselves to degrees, but we are not concerned in that we lose hope, we lose trust, and we succumb to fear because God is not in control. Subjection to every human institution does not come without oppression and persecution. And next week we'll look at how the body of Christ should respond and have conduct towards and in the persecutions of men. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I pray that this word would settle in our hearts for the next week, that we might be cognizant of the reality that we're given in, in as re, uh, with regards to submission and subjecting ourselves to human institutions, whether it be a 
whether it be a, a wife to a husband, whether it be a child to a parent, whether it be us as Americans to our government, whether it be to police, whether it be to whatever human institution there is in our lives that governs us. And Lord, I know we only scratch the surface of this, and I think there are tremendous conversations that could take place, and I think that there are so many nuances that are are layered in between this reality, as I'm thinking about it. And I pray that you would grant us wisdom as we do work through these things. And just being real, Lord, what, 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 do we, what do we think about a speed limit or what do we think about a South Carolina law that tells us you, it's illegal to spit on the, the sidewalk? Lord, some of these things I, I, I wrestle with and I wrestle with how to respond to those things. And we look to your word and, and, and we want to understand what, what, what line is drawn in the sand so we know what side to stay on so that we can see it clearly. We want to obey you. It's not easy subjecting ourselves because we're, we're sinners, we're broken. We're idolaters. We love ourselves. Lord, and the call to be a Christian is to deny ourselves. And to deny ourselves means to subject ourselves to you ultimately. And Lord, it's not easy, so we ask you to give us strength. Even though we know that it's best and we know that it's good, Lord, it also just puts on display the, the wretched nature that is sin in our lives. That we would know what's best and know what's good, and yet still we would choose otherwise. Still we would pursue lesser things. And we would think that those lesser things would provide us with a sufficiency that is false. I pray that you would make us content with your word and content with your will. Lord, that as you promised, that you would truly satisfy us in all things. And it would be our pleasure to follow your your, your law and your will. So that we may show others the value of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.